This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. My guest on this episode is Dr. Ignacio Adria Sola, assistant professor at the Department of Art History, Visual Art, and Theory at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Adria Sola's most recent publication is Japan's Venice, a Japanese pavilion at the Venice Biennale and the pseudo objectivity of the international in the October 2017 issue of Archives of Asian Art. Sola, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Recently, you published a paper talking about how the Meiji period was a time when Japanese artists were able to really define what Japanese art was. Can you expand on that for us? Yeah, so the thing that happens to the Meiji period is that for the first time, you actually have a discourse on both what it means to be Japanese and also what it means to have art. Uh, of course, you have artistic practices uh, that extend way before uh, the 19th century uh, developing in Japan, but it is only in the Meiji period that all of these all of these objects that that were being created are thought of as a cohesive category uh, of things that you would call Japanese art. First of all, so on the one hand, you have this movement towards the organization of this material of the past at the service of this new of this new category, which is Japan, like Japan as a nation state, right, and Concurrent with that, you have the development of a framework for, for artistic production that is being produced in relation to a notion of Japaneseness. So you have a series of artists who start thinking about what it means to be producing art, this time as art, within a period that they recognize as distinct from the past, as you know, both present and future. Uh, and this is and this is demarcated in the term in the term Japan, right? The term Japan being one that is reconceptualized after the Meiji Restoration as returning to or pertaining to a national a national cultural category that did not necessarily exist beforehand. What is so fascinating about Japan in the nineteenth century is that you have this case study that is provided by this moment of rapid modernization, where you are able to consider really closely how it is that this thing that we call art exists in the world, right? Art is not, uh, the first thing that we need to understand is that art is not a given. Art is not something that simply exists uh, just because. Rather, it is uh, a set of conceptual and and practical procedures and, and it involves education, it involves epistemological frameworks. And these are all things that are developed over centuries. Japan had its own way of conceptualizing cultural production prior to 1868, prior to 1854, which is a moment of the opening of the ports. Then with the opening of the ports and then the major restoration, all of a sudden you see the Japanese state actively pursuing the implementation of this idea of fine arts as a means of furthering the program of civilization and enlightenment, right? 
the idea of the development of, of a uh, rich country with a strong army. You will wonder how this has any, whether this has anything to do with strong armies. As a matter of fact, it does in the sense that it is a site for ideological dissemination. Fine arts provides a framework for ideological dissemination. So when we think about the Meiji period, it's really fascinating when you think about it in terms of the system, fine arts as a system, a system that is constituted of multiple aspects, both in terms of uh, the development of new forms of art practice that are understood now as partaking within this, within notions of, of the fine arts and, and evaluation schema that did not exist before. It also has to do with the development of an educational system that replicates this idea, that teaches uh, people how to see. And as part of that educational system, of course, you have the development of museums, right, and public galleries, which are making available work and, and uh, serve as a type of demonstration, both of um, the contours of this category, right, or the contours of this idea of the fine arts, uh, how this can be applied to understanding things of the past, a past that is now being reorganized as part of a national past for the first time. And you also have, you also have this, this development in relation to the museum of a notion of a public, right? I mean, museums are super useful when you think about the development of an idea that everybody is together, that they're all kind of sharing within the same space. Uh, people who come from different class backgrounds who would not necessarily belong to the same sphere are all of a sudden able to imagine themselves as Japanese, as part of the same public. And then you have other things that are also undergirding this, this fine arts framework. One of them is, um, and for me, one of the more interesting aspects of it is, is precisely the epistemological framework. So the very fact that today I am working as an art historian, working on, the, on, on Japanese art history, that's essentially the job that I applied for here at, at UBC, is, is in part due to the fact that in the 19th century you have a group of people who start theorizing what the contours of this category Japanese art look like. What goes into that category, what stays out of that category, uh, the monuments that are utilized and mobilized in order to talk about that category, as well as trying to figure out, um, uh, of course, what is uh, most culturally appropriate, right? What is most Japanese as opposed to, to other things? So in a sense, uh, when we talk about Japanese art history, yes, the Meiji period is, the Meiji restoration is extremely important because it is actually the political event that enables the creation of the category that, that, is, that undergirds the whole enterprise, right? Without the Meiji restoration, without, that, without the drive towards modernization, then there would not have been necessarily the same desire to account for things of the past as part of a cohesive national narrative, right? Uh, and therefore uh, generate this part of the thrust of, of the introduction of the fine art system to Japan. You mentioned that the Meiji state was the one that defined this category. Are there artists involved or who are these actors that mm -hmm. are actually making this distinction? Yeah, okay, so there's, it's really quite complicated in the sense that, of course, we have, uh, we have the state, and then we have its rhetoric, and we have the bureaucrats involved in the state. Bureaucrats such as Okakura Tenshin, most importantly, he is a really fascinating figure who ends up uh, leading, he is the first, he establishes, helps establish the Tokyo School of Fine Arts, where a new form of painting is being taught, a synthetic form of painting known as neo-traditional painting or Japanese-style painting a form of national painting, right, that is formed based on previously existing practices that are then melded together and, and borrowing certain, certain formal solutions from, from European painting traditions 
in order to make it more modern or look more modern, but is in essence uh, something that believes itself to be a continuation uh, rather than a whole break from what has existed in the past. People who are playing a fundamental role in the establishment of the painting program include include other painters who were members of the Cano school, right? Who had been trained in the old in the old way of developing uh, artistic skills in Japan, uh, who had been patronized by the Tokugawa, who had um, had contact with uh, Buddhist institutions, etc. Um, and these painters were all of a sudden uh, they made themselves available to to these uh, to the Meiji state in order to kind of articulate articulate this new type of painting and and the painters that are most uh, closely associated with this development are to this development are Kano Hogai, Hashimoto Gaho, and and their students Shimomura Kanzan and then most famously Yokoyama Taikan who had because of because of his very very long life was able to carry through this ideology way into the 20th century. I mean, Taikan dies, Taikan dies like in, during the war. I mean, it's, it's, he's, he's very much uh, somebody who, who was at the center of the artistic establishment in the pre-war period. Now, of course, there's outliers or people who are operating outside the system. And it, we are kind of, when we're, we're talking about structures, it's very easy to forget that there's actually a lot of diversity and heterogeneity in the, in, in, on the ground. In the late Edo period, there are multiple painting practices that have very little to do with each other, uh, that are in communication with each other, but have very little to do with each other. People who work with different patrons, overlapping circles of patronage, um, and yet, uh, and so well, within, within, these, within these multiple pockets, we have uh, painters who will continue, who kind of straddle both periods, right? People like Shibata Zeshin, who was uh, a fantastic lacquerware artist and ceramicist and, and, and painter. He had multiple, his practice was really quite, quite fluid. Uh, he was uh, picking things that he'd learned from his painting practice and transferring them to, to lacquer making, which was ostensibly his main metier. But these figures are really interesting to us because they are people whose practice is all-encompassing, which are kind of, they are practicing painting, but they are also doing other things, and then they have these very long lives, and therefore are, are kind of participating both in the late Edo marketplace as well as in the early Meiji period, and they are collected, avidly collected and, per, and pursued by, by uh, European collectors become very enthralled by the idea of, of Japanese style. Right? So there's this secondary strand, this other strand, the strand that is kind of more, uh, more organic, organically developing and, and yet so important as well to the development of the fine art system. You mentioned several times now how it, uh, in defining this, uh, this category of Japanese modern art, there is an attempt to bring back the past and, go and bring back traditional practices. And it, it's a great example of how the construction of modernity always includes a certain aspect of invented traditions. But I'm curious about, uh, you talked about the heterogeneity of art as it existed, and there's uh, a number of traditional practices and methods that could have been brought back. What were the factors that went into why these groups of artists in collaboration with the state identified these categories. Like I said, this uh, certain tradition is the one that we're bringing back and using to define modern Japanese art. That's a great, that's a great, that's a great question. And, and um, well, the, 
most immediately, the two artists who I just mentioned, uh, Hashimoto Gaho and uh, Kano Hogai, uh, both of these artists were artists who had strong links to the Kano school of painters. And the Kano school was essentially a really versatile, had developed a very versatile approach to, to painting, to painting media. Um, they had very early on come up with what became their signature Kano synthesis that brought together elements from monochrome ink painting, so kind of Chinese style painting, like what was known as Chinese style. These are these are these are moving signifiers. So I always kind of you can't see my, my scare quotes, but I'm making a lot of scare quotes right now. The idea of karae, uh, in a sense, a type of painting practice, monochrome painting practice, mostly that was uh, patronized by uh, shoguno circles in the Muromachi period, by the Ashikaga family. And then because, because of the vagaries of politics in the late Middle Ages, all of a sudden you see the development of new, of new patronage, patronage uh, circles and support networks and, and new demands for different type of material. And so they started pulling in, the Kano, the Kano pain, painters start pulling in material that had been more traditionally associated with aristocratic, with, with uh, painters serving aristocratic clans, such as the Tosa school, uh, the Tosa painters. As a matter of fact, uh, I believe it's Motonobu, Kano Motonobu, who marries into, he marries into the, the Tosa, marries a Tosa, a Tosa family member, and therefore gains access to all of this information that he's then able to mobilize in the production of a new type of painting style. So there's that, and they, these are people who've been active since the 16th century and are really, really highly connected to, at every single degree, with the imperial household, uh, connected to the Tokugawa, connected to domain of lords, to Buddhist institutions. They are also involved in the production of this thing called the, hon the Honcho Gashi, which is the first, uh, we could call it a painting, it's kind of like a proto-painting history. It's a type of painting history that is produced at the service for to, toward furthering the ends of the of the of the Kano school of painters, essentially organizing everything that is known. It's a sp it is partly based on the Kundaikan, the the Kundaikan Sochoki, which was the Ashikaga painting manual, the painting catalogs that had been compiled during the Muromachi period, but now much expanded and encompassing all of these painters from different schools, from the major schools of painting in Japan, and especially, of course, the Kano painters who are always portrayed as the best, the, the best and the brightest. Of course, it's much more complicated than that. There's also branches of the Kano school which are competing for same sources of patronage, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of competition. In essence, in the 19th century, when all of a sudden the Meiji state is trying to develop a program of national culture, they're able to latch on to these previously existing painting schools. And they invite these Kano painters because they're the ones who have all the knowledge, uh, the knowledge of all these, of these different range of techniques. They are the ones who have been involved in authentication of artwork. They're the ones who have been involved in deciding who's better and who's worse, right? And so there's a valuation schema that is transmitted and translated. So on the one hand, you know, for the past 30 years or so, Art historians have been really talking about the development of the Meiji art system as kind of like this innovation. But this innovation could not have happened without the work that had been, that had been the groundwork that had been set in place by the Kano School of Painters. And this is, of course, thing, it's something that has been discussed by a number of, uh, a number of art historians, most recently by 
like uh, Yukio Lipid at Harvard, but also uh, in Japan, of course, there's there's a wealth of uh, research that is going on in, into the way that this these Edo period schools of painters informed the formation of these of these new painting modes. Was there a commercial element as well to why certain objects in particular, certain styles of painting were adopted? Yeah, absolutely. So a second strand in the formation of this of this thing that we call the fine arts framework is um, the promotion of industry policies that are set up in place by the Japanese government in the early Meiji period. Um, and these are policies we have to we have to remember that in the aftermath of the of the restoration, Japan is in a really, really lousy economic place. They are in part because of the trade arrangements, the agreements that the unequal agreements that are set up in place for 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 uh, trade with other nations, uh, but also because of the establishment of uh, a number of policies that are that are not not necessarily working. I'm thinking about the Matsukata Dete, for instance, the inflationary cycle in the 1870s. So they're really short on cash, and the way that they figure out they can get more cash is by fomenting exports, the export market. Uh, in particular, light manufacture, and uh, within light ma manufacture, uh, they're thinking especially high-end craft and samurai product. So uh, there's a, a bit of um, the need to kind of foment a local framework for artistic production and an educational framework, more importantly, is linked to the role that artists play in the production of patterns, for instance, and of uh, new approaches to decoration in objects that, were th th that are, at the time, highly coveted in the European, in the European luxury market. So 18, in the 18, starting in the 1860s, uh, Japan, Japanese representations of various sorts start emerging in uh, universal expositions. And uh, uh, and while you have the these objects, these Japanese objects that start showing up in international venues, all of a sudden you see a boom in interest, uh, a boom in interest in in all all manners of objects, Japanese or coded Japanese, uh, even if they're not Japanese, they look Japanese, so mm -hmm. like they they kind of fall under this under this fad, you know, and so the Japanese government decides to the Meiji government decides to latch onto Japanismu, this fad and promotes it in a number of, of, of different ways. And there's multiple actors involved. Internationally, of course, you have Marchand d'Art, uh, famously Yamanaka Shokai, the Yamanaka Company, which is, which is uh, trading in, in art objects. Uh, you have uh, amateurs in, 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 uh, in France, people who start writing about this stuff, like Geoffroy Goncourt, uh, Edmond de Goncourt and, uh, and his brother. And then Louis Gons, who's also really interested. And then you have and then you have another strand of interest that is kind of related, um, the aestheticist movement in the 1880s, 1890s in, in, um, in England and in, in North America. Um, we, ha we have people like Whistler, right, who's, who's deeply interested in, in these objects. And, and through him, other collectors, uh, especially uh, Charles Freer. So we see kind of all of a sudden a lot of, a lot of interest and a lot of movement. I'm talking about like the names that I'm just giving you right now are all, of course, in the upper and the upper echelons of these of this market, like the people who are trading in in, in, in in fine art. But underneath it, there's of course also other forms of lighter manufacture that are that are in a sense in communication with these with these with these interests with these artistic interests. 
um, and that is the realm of high, of high crafting and not so high craft, what we now call design, right? And they're in communication with each other. One of the things that the native state does, which I think is really fascinating, is they invite a number of canovators to produce a handbook of appropriate designs for, say, ceramics, lacquerware, cloisonné. What these artists are doing is, in essence, pick up motifs uh, and compositional devices that are present in famous and not so famous paintings and rendering them into patterns that can then be applied onto these onto commodities in order to generate a cohesive and coherent and likable aesthetic that, that, that will kind of touch on all the buttons of what these uh, collectors in Europe are seeking. That, uh, that effort is codified in this thing called the Onchi Zuroku, uh, the Onchi Catalog. Uh, I do not know how to translate this. I would say it's like the, it's like um, honored wisdom. It's the honored wisdom catalog, right? Uh, these, these are things that are very much- Best practices. Uh, best practices manual yeah, yeah. That, that are in essence present in, in, in within the Kano school and that are now being disseminated widely mm. through print media. This attempt by the state to define best practices, to define Japanese art, and particularly for the foreign market, sounds a lot like the Cool Japan program of the late you know, 2000s. Uh, Hello Kitty named an ambassador, cultural ambassador to Asia. Uh, this kind of government-centric attempt to promote Japanese culture through art. Do you think, w would it be fair to call Japanese made the first Japan cool? I don't know if I would call Japanese a cool Japan. Um, I mean, there's a number of problems with cool Japan as a... I mean, I think that there are points of overlap in the sense that there's an attempt at defining what, what, is, what is distinctive and using that distinction in order to promote a particular, uh, a particular set of products. Uh, but that's kind of the place where similarities start ending. So with the popularity of Japanese me in Europe, do we see any impacts of Japanese art on European artists or European artistic practices? We have the, we have the phenomenon of Japonismo, which I've been alluding to, and um, Japonismo was, um, was the fad for all things Japanese. Um, the objects that were starting to make it into European market in the 1850s and 1860s uh, included paintings, included woodcuts, and uh, they were picked up by um, a group of artists who were looking, with, for instance, in France, who were seeking ways to break from uh, conventional modes of representation as they were being practiced in um, within their fine arts framework, within their fine arts, fine arts, the real, I mean, the, the original Beaux Arts framework, um, and. Um, they turned to, they, they, they encountered these objects, these artists started encountering these objects and they realized that there's a number of formal solutions and, and compositional elements that they can latch on to um, in order to renew their practice and, and, and they are in fact kind of resonant with what they, what they are interested in. And I'm thinking especially about the, the group of painters who are usually referred to as the Impressionists. Um, so uh, for instance, I think of Claude Manet's uh, portrait of Emile Zola uh, we look at uh, the portrait, and in the and there's two really interesting details. On the upper right corner, we have uh, we have we see some woodcuts displayed side by side with a photograph of uh, Manet's Olympia, 
Um, and then on the left-hand side, we have a folding screen um, that looks kind of like a standard uh, bird and flower painting. Um, these uh, artists were were interested in, in 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 certain elements that they that they identified in in these formal compositions that they do not necessarily understand for their cultural value. They were really looking at the visual effects, so they're thinking about they're thinking about the abbreviation in the background, and they're thinking about they're thinking about patterning, and they're thinking about uh, the lack of shading, the lack the lack of concern for volumetry or for elements that were so deeply ingrained within Western painting tradition. And uh, what they do is uh, they start borrowing from them. And we see a number of people. We see like Vincent van Gogh, for instance, uh, copying verbatim, studying studying the composition device device utilized by Hiroshige in his Plum Trees and Camello in the One Hundred Views of Edo, uh, which he produces as flowering plum trees uh, with these uh, ersatz Japanese inscriptions on both sides. I mean, it's kind of it it it, it is kind of clumsy, but but it shows the artist really grappling with, with these objects. Um, Japan, for the Japonistes, for people like Van Gogh, Japan was an idea, it was, uh, it was a dream. Uh, it was the dream of a place where art and life were coming together. Uh, they, they imagined Japan to be a type of aesthetic paradise. Um, they were really enthralled by the smaller size of, of objects and, and, and the different approaches to painting. Um, they were they misperceived in certain in a certain capacity what these objects what these objects were about. Van Gogh imagined himself when he when he does his uh, what we call the going away. He retires from the city because he sees that it's not the city urban context is not is not propitious for him to to carry out his painting program. He goes he goes to um, Arles and he writes to his brother Theo Van Gogh. He writes uh, he writes I imagine myself to be in Japan. He imagines himself to be Japanese in, in, and, and surrounded by beauty and, 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 and being able to lead this aesthetic life. Never mind that you know this place that he's retired to is actually becoming industrialized at, as, as he's writing. And he arrives to the countryside like on the train, right? So we're not, we're not, talking, about, we're not talking about something that is far removed from modernity, but that's the way that he imagines himself as an artist. He imagines himself going back to the roots and, and finding himself in a, in, a, in a pure position. And these Japanese objects that he's looking at tell him of a culture, or that he imagines to be a culture, that is deeply aesthetic. Now, of course, this is a misperception. The art historian Inagashi Yemi uh, describes this as, uh, describes Japanese as the site of an electrical discharge that is that is originate that originates at the point of contact of to, of, of of things that have fundamentally different cultural voltage, right? Um, and this generates all this energy, all this energy, and this leads to the renovation of painting practices. Yes, sure enough, in in uh, it sparks in many ways the modernist revolution, right? In painting. Now. Um, I was talking about I was talking about Japan and how Japan kind of starts introducing the fine art system and, and the way that the introduction of oil painting as a specific technology is really really important in the development of that local fine, fine arts framework. We have a sequence of, of of generations of artists. First, those of them who are who were active in the Edo period, who at the time of the opening of the ports are able to learn 
from people who are arriving to the place. Then we have uh, people who start studying fine, the oil painting as fine arts practice within the newly established fine arts institutions that are, uh, that are being promoted by the Japanese state. Um, and uh, I'm thinking about especially the, the technical school. So there's a second generation of artists who are able to study with foreign specialists brought in by, by the Meiji government, uh, like uh, Ragusa and, and Kobanesi, and uh, they are able to learn. They are able to learn in the academic system in Japan, within Japan. And then you have a new generation of artists who do their entire training abroad, and then come back and start training other people based on the system that they have learned abroad. And one of the figures who does this is Kuroda Seiki. Kuroda Seiki travels to uh, France, I believe in the early, in late 1880s, or early 1890s. And he goes and studies under a private, a private, a private instructor, uh, an academician. Uh, his name was uh, Rafael Collin. And, and so he undergoes the whole training within these, within like very much the same training that somebody would have undergone in the in the School of Fine Arts, a slightly different curriculum, and uh, then returns to Japan and, and becomes and becomes a salaried painter. But by the point in time at which Kuroda is learning painting, he is learning a very different painting than the type of painting that existed in France circa 50. Painting practices in France have been completely transformed through contact with uh, through contact with other cultures, especially uh, through contact with uh, the the Japonese, right? Uh, through the introduction of uh, a number of, of uh, Japanese-like shorthands into into pictorial idioms, through the uh, impressionists and their increased interest in optical effects, so their recasting of the illusionist tradition and the complete dropping out of issues uh, that had concerned the academy, the painting academy, in the early part of the 19th century, in, uh, including the, the question of finish, whether this should be a completely, whether we should be able to see that this is in fact a painting or whether we should, we should hmm. simply see it as reality, right? And so by the time that Kuroda is learning painting, he's learning a very loose form of painting. The brushwork is very evident. We see him much more concerned with He's not as concerned with volume and with shading as he is concerned with atmospheric effect and with and with light and 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 and, and optical illusionism, and uh, he utilizes compositional devices that are somewhat extraneous to to that Western painting tradition, as they would have existed in the early part of that century. So, in a sense, I think that what uh, Kuroda did in going to France was essentially going to France to learn how to paint by the Japanese artist. Well, so far we've talked about how the Meiji period is, an, is a time when Japanese artists can define the category. We've, we've talked about how uh, the structures of, of, of art change in Japan. We've talked about how some of the, the objects change. But what about the medium of art? How do we see changes in art as a medium in the Meiji period? Absolutely. Well, so you have the, um, 
the fundamental question the, the fundamental question in the Navy period in, in, in within the art system is um, concerns the cultural appropriateness of certain of certain type of media media medium here being literally the way that you that you that, that, that you create art um, the cultural status of oil painting is hotly contested oil painting was actually really quite well known in Japan prior to prior to the opening of the ports it was known by some by some people and practiced uh, famous figures like Hokusai uh, were known to have produced oil paintings Hokusai's oil paintings were terrible but they are <laughs> at least they, they serve the purpose for him of, of demonstrating that he knew how to paint all sorts of in all sorts of ways and all sorts of manners um, the what what happens then is in, in essence uh, not necessarily in relation to the introduction of oil painting but the uh, development of this program of neo-traditional painting which is supposedly kind of imagined by its ideologues as being the natural continuation of things that have existed in the past geared towards the production of a painting program for the future it's a very historicist practice in the sense that it looks it looks to the past in order to position itself it's uh, very much uh, engaged with history um, we have oil painting, which is oil painting, which is kind of a fundamentally different medium. It's a medium that is uh, different from the water-based media that that water-based medium that has traditionally existed in East Asia. Uh, the properties, the physical properties of oil painting, are really quite distinct. Uh, it takes much longer for paint to dry, and therefore it allows for correction. This uh, this leads to the development of all sorts of techniques that allow for the exploration of uh, uh, modulation, for instance, of color, of shading, um, correction, right? Um, therefore leading to uh, more accurate more accurate depictions. Uh, so it, it lends itself to the development of a painting practice that is more concerned with very similar codes, to, with truth-likeness. Um, but um, there's also something really quite interesting about this medium. I was just talking about this in my class, actually. Oil painting is not simply a medium. It's a set of practices and a set of ways of looking at the world, uh, of approaching the education in a very specific technique of application of pigment, uh, involving uh, a, type, a type of training, the training of the eye and hand. Um, it requires several steps to understand how it, is, how, how it is that you create a design, how you compose things and how you apply painting, etc. It comes also with a series of aesthetic, valu aesthetic valuations and particular hierarchy of subject matter that is really quite interesting. The top type of, the, the most important type of painting in the oil painting tradition in, in Europe is of course history painting. So here we have the question of history emerging in two different ways in related media, but in, in, in one case we have a historicist practice that, that uses, that, that hinges on the question of, of it being the same medium that has been used before, versus this other practice that is, that is a modern practice that is in a sense a foreign practice, not so foreign in reality, um, that is thinking it as, as in itself also as a, as a type of historicist exercise that puts, that places this idea of history, of a lineal history and of a, cultural essence undergirded by religion, mythology, etc., 
at the very top of its at the very top of its taxonomy, right? Um, so yeah, so the question of medium is very much at, at the core of the Meiji of the Meiji period. It, it is the question in in the case of painting. I n never heard that Hokusai did oil painting. We always think of Hokusai in his woodblock prints, uh, but this makes me think of this anecdote that I've always heard about how Hokusai's woodblock prints are respected more as art outside of Japan than they were in Japan at the time. In fact, the, the anecdote was something about how when the lacquerware boxes and uh, other artifacts were sent back to the West from Japan, they were often wrapped in these woodblock prints. And then the people opening up the, the crates at the museum would look at this stuffing paper and say, oh my God, this is a beautiful piece of art. And that's how they became more respected in, in the West. Is that true? Well, there's a bit of mythology surrounding this, as as uh, as all things go. I mean, it is true. It it is true, and it's not not necessarily true. It is true in the sense that the objects, the objects that traveled from Japan to um, Europe, were not originally thought of as art. They were highly valued as woodcuts, uh, and they were collected and. Uh, Hokusai, of course, was really popular, and and the and the thirty six views of Mount Fuji and and the Hokusai manga were were reprinted over and over again uh, for decades after his death. Um, but they were not necessarily prior to the prior to the inception of this notion of fine arts. They were not necessarily consumed as art. So yes, in the sense that yes, the the Europeans discovered these things as art, but that was in essence because the Europeans were extending this uh, concept that they had to objects that were imagined in a different capacity. When we think about woodcuts, we need to think about them in relation to a broader print ecology. When we think about woodcuts, we need to think about them in connection to hampon, to books. We have to think about them in relation to uh, single sheets of paper, like talismans, uh, protective talismans, and things like that. It's, uh, they were thinking about it in a, in a slightly different way. They are connected to painting practices, of course, um, and there are multiple points of overlap. In the case of Hokusai in particular, uh, when I think about the 36 views of Mount Fuji, I usually teach that as one of the first iterations of the idea of landscape. So this is an idea, the idea of organizing the outside world uh, along the lines of one-point perspective or looking at uh, land at land as referential as a representation as rep referential to a specific geographic place, um, and an attempt at kind of dealing with the particularities of that place, that is uh, that is something that is somewhat new in Japan um, that starts kind of becoming articulated in the late 18th century and 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 really kind of is finally uh, converging with modes of depiction that make it through print media into Japan in the 18th century. Um, one point perspective, that's in essence what I'm, what I'm thinking about, which is a really very particular way of, of, of thinking about uh, representing the world. I mean, the idea that you have somebody, a, a s that you can replicate the point of view of a single pers person, right? A single perspective. And that in order to do that, you can use, you can utilize this mathematical grid. Um, all of these things kind of were somewhat known in East Asia. They make their way back in in the 17th, 18th centuries, and then all of a sudden they're starting to percolate into 
into uh, woodcuts by the 19th century um, and then utilized by, by Hoxai as a kind of very uh, novel device in order to, uh, that, that complements the, the, the project of depicting these 36 views of, 36 views of different things in order, uh, in order to present these 36 views, of course, he utilizes Fuji as, as a grounding subject matter. Um, so it's the first. It's the first kind of Western European landscape in Japan produced by a Japanese person. No, I, I guess that doesn't make much sense. But but you know you you kind of see what it, where, where it is that I'm, I'm trying to go with that. The Meiji at One Fifty podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.